0: So, let's first begin talking about covenants. We've talked about the covenant path uh, several times, and just as a brief reminder, there's two major covenants. There's the Abrahamic covenant, and that's what God's duties are to provide us pathways for salvation, and then there's, there's the Mosaic covenant, and that's our duties and our loyalty back to God, and what God has asked of us has been revealed at Mount Sinai. So, you'll see these covenants actually playing out throughout the Book of Mormon. In fact, they're very much on display in 2 Nephi 6-10, through and Isaiah spends a lot of time on these two covenants. So, if you can remember these two covenants, what God does for us, that's the Abrahamic promises and covenant, and what we should be doing for God and for his children, that's the Mosaic covenant. So, if you look for those things as you're reading, you'll see the covenants of the fathers that are often discussed in scriptures. And let's actually talk about the fathers for a minute. These people matter. If you want to understand the scriptures, you got to understand the patriarchs. First, we have Abraham, and then his son Isaac, and then Isaac had a son named Jacob. Then Jacob had 12 sons, and those sons are called the 12 sons of Israel. Why Israel? Jacob's name gets changed to Israel during this nighttime encounter with God that he has, where he wrestles with God and God gives him this new name. It's almost like this temple experience. And so, we know Jacob also to be the same person to be as is Israel. And so, his sons become the twelve sons of Israel or the twelve tribes of Israel. And it's the descendants of the twelve tribes of Israel or the house of Israel or the Israelites, all these things refer to the same group, that they're taken into bondage and God sent Moses to save them. Actually, God saves them. And he gives them the Mosaic Covenant at Mount Sinai, and he delivers that to the 12 tribes of Israel. And then later, there are a number of prophets who continue to call upon the memory of what God has asked the people to covenantally do at Sinai. And as descendants of the house of Israel, or if you've been adopted in, we all are covenantally bound to show our loyalty to God uh, based on the commandments he's revealed to the prophets. And if we do, we receive all the Abrahamic promises. So, that's the covenant path that is – that marks and shows the way to Jesus, what God does for us under the Abrahamic covenant and what we do because of the commandments that God has revealed through his prophets. So, with that background, let's now transition into the overview of 2 Nephi chapter 6 through 10 and also spend some time talking about who Isaiah is, why he wrote, and how that actually helps us understand the Book of Mormon. yeah, let's wipe that off. As we,
1: as we jump in here, on both sides of these, these covenants, obviously a covenant is a two-way promise, and so I love what Taylor's talking about. With the Abrahamic covenant, the thing that is getting emphasized is God's faithfulness, and with the Mosaic covenant are these, these commandments and these, these things that people have to do. One phrase to watch for as you read the scriptures, and this is in the Old Testament, the New Testament, the Book of Mormon, The for me, the essence of all covenant, because covenant is, is this connection with God between us and him. Watch for the phrase, I'll just draw it like a nutshell, because this is the nutshell definition of all these covenants that we make. It's where he says, I Will be your God, and you will be my people. That's that's, a great
0: insight. that's
1: the essence of the covenant of any covenant is this God in heaven saying, Look, I I will take care of you. I will treat you like a God treats uh, His people, but you have to treat me like your God. You have to love me. You have to have faith in me. You have to tr- come to me, and rely on me and that is the only safety is in that covenant. Consequently, you'll hear other scriptures uh, be used, scriptures such as, wickedness never was happiness. That's simply a statement of truth. Wickedness never was happiness. Why? It's because you've no longer said, I want you to be my God, you've said, I want something else that this world has to offer to be my God, and none of those things can treat you like God can treat you. There's no happiness, there's no enduring joy that can flow from anything that the world offers you as a counterfeit to the true covenant connection in the safety of of being with God as his people. What happens is people will come to the Book of Mormon. If If you stop and think about this for a minute, what are the sections in the Book of Mormon that people most often either skip or glaze over and just kind of blah, 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 I'll get to the end, okay, let's pick up the story. Which sections?
0: Oh, I know, I know.
1: Which sections? Isaiah. It's Isaiah or where Jesus is giving a speech about the house of Israel in 3rd Nephi or Zenos is giving a long allegory about the house of Israel and the covenant connection. It's interesting because wherever the scriptures start talking about Covenant and House of Israel, if we're not careful, we zone out when in reality it's God setting up the terms of this connection that we have with him. It's really, really important, but it's not on a silver platter for us. It's, you have to dig, you have to pay attention, you have to do more than just read black words on a white page. If you take the book of Isaiah, there's a simple way to divide out Isaiah. You can just divide it into half Chapters 1 through 39 is the first segment of Isaiah, and chapter 40 through 66 is the second segment of Isaiah. This this whole opening segment is God speaking to Israel in sometime around between the 740 and 701 BC so 100 to 140 years before Lehi comes into the story. Israel has gone through this pattern so many times, the pride cycle, if you will, from the Book of Mormon, where they've, they've suffered, they've been humble, they've repented, God has blessed them, reestablished the covenant. They're like, okay, yeah, we're, we're yours, we'll worship you now. And then they forget. And then they forget, or they get prosperous and and willingly go after other gods and they leave the covenant. You'll notice God's never the one leaving the covenant. He's spending a lot of time going around finding them to reestablish the covenant, but he's never leaving it. They're the ones who leave it. So they do this over and over and over and over again, and finally, you get to Isaiah, and the first 39 chapters are 39 chapters of consequences of this is what happens when you repeatedly break my, my connection with you, when you treat me as if I'm not your
0: God. And what's interesting about this is that when we don't show our loyalty to God, he is covenantally obligated to bring forth, well, the opposite of blessings. And Let me just give a, just a brief metaphor about this. If you rent a home or you have a mortgage, you have made an agreement with the landlord. So, if you're a renter, there's a landlord who owns the property. If it's a mortgage, uh, the bank actually owns the property, so they're the landlord. And there's certain obligations that you are required to fulfill. And if you actually decide to break those expectations that the landlord has placed on the land or on the home or on the on the bank note for the mortgage, what, is th- what do you think is going to happen? If you are consistently breaking the agreement that you made with the landlord or the bank, eventually they will kick you out of the house and off the land. And what happens to the people of Israel? They don't show loyalty to God. Remember, God revealed the instructions for loyalty. It's the Ten Commandments, like, love God, love your neighbor. And if you don't do those things, you're off the land. And why do the 12 tribes, or sorry, the 10 tribes get taken into captivity? They broke the covenant. They're off the land. And they were warned and warned and warned,
1: and they they refused. They refused to come back to the covenant. So, understand that the book of Isaiah is way more complex than this. This is a really, really simple look to separate it out to make it a little easier to digest. The fascinating thing is the second half shows God's mercy, his love, his compassion, his long-suffering. So, this is – the the all of these chapters are messages of hope and deliverance, even though these people don't deserve it. They don't they don't deserve deliverance, they don't deserve love, but they get it anyway because
0: God made a promise to Abraham. And that's his grace and his mercy. And that Abrahamic covenant, God promised to always offer grace and love to his people. And if we turn away from it, the grace doesn't go away, the love doesn't go away, we just have walked away from it. And he's just saying, hey everybody, it's still here, come back to me and I will give you all these things. It's freely
1: available. Now, some of you are probably wondering at this point, why are you spending so much time on this? I thought our scripture block was 2nd Nephi chapter 6 through 10. The reality is, is, uh, you, you can't really understand what's going on in chapter 6, 7, 8, and then Jacob's commentary in 9 and 10, unless you understand the context of why Jacob's using Isaiah and what he's trying to do with Isaiah to convince his people his people are struggling. They're not they're, – they're, they're wandering, and he's trying to pull them back into the covenant, and he's going to quote to them uh, chapters 50, 51, and first two verses of chapter 52 here in a minute, which is the ce- leading up to the center point of this hope and deliverance of God keeping these covenants. Um, the fascinating thing is the hope and the deliverance comes it culminates in chapters fifty two through fifty four where you get these these uh, allusions to this suffering servant who's going to come and be punished and take upon him all of our transgressions, all of our breakages of the law to allow it so that that covenant can be reestablished. It's all about the atonement of Jesus Christ, which If we don't understand that, then again, all we're going to be doing is reading black words on a white page when we come to to 2nd Nephi 6 through 10. Let me show you one other thing here. One reason among many why people struggle with Isaiah is they'll read him in the Book of Mormon in isolation. So, we often get into the habit, because of the, the way the book is laid out, we'll read a chapter a day or we'll, we'll focus on one chapter at a time, and when we do that, we miss some of the, the overarching beauty of how the book was put together, because when Jacob or Nephi or Alma or Helaman, when they wrote the book and when Mormon put it together and abridged it, he didn't use chapters and verses the way we have them. He didn't do that. He did have chapters, no verses, but those chapters are much bigger, and it would be worth some effort for for you, if you want to look into that, to look at the original 1830 edition, how the chapters were broken out, and you'll find out, oh, this author intended for all of our current chapters to be read together as one unit or one whole. It'll change the way you look at some of these chapters. One other overview perspective here and then we'll we're going to dive in. There is a there's a big difference between a Hebrew worldview and and a, a perspective of who we are and identity and a Greek perspective. The Hebrew people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, the house of Israel, all of them, Moses, all of that group all the way down into Jesus's time, the Hebrew people instinctively identify themselves at the group level or at the family level. There's a high sense of identity attached to my family, my tribe, my, my identity comes because I am of the house of Israel in this larger world. The Greeks come along and take over the world and they flip that on its head. For the Greeks, it's all about democracy, it's all about every man for himself, everybody everybody is an individual identity, and so they find their identity more so at the individual local level regardless of what's going on out there. When you read scriptures, notice that the Old Testament and the New Testament and much of the Book of Mormon is written from this perspective, where your identity comes by being – by coming into the house of Israel, coming into the covenant family.
0: Being a child of Abraham. Child of Abraham.
1: We live now in the 21st century in a Greek-dominated world. We can thank the Greeks. I mean, without them, we wouldn't have all the freedoms and all of the opportunities, politically and business and culturally and with the arts and And learning. We we have a lot of things to thank them for. So, when you read your scriptures, notice that it's written from this perspective, but you can feel free to take them personally. So, while we're talking about Isaiah referring to the house of Israel and the family and this group identity, that's good and we're not taking that away. We would never want to take that away because that's how it was given in its original context. I guess our point is, don't forget that you can take that one step to liken all scriptures unto yourself, bring them down off of the, umbre- the higher umbrella level, bring them down to the eye level, if you will. They're easier to see there and to relate to you, your family, your situation, in your immediate uh,
0: uh, situation. Yeah, circumstances. Yeah. So what we're going to do is talk about the structure of Second Nephi 6-10 through 10, so you can see what's going on here.
1: Yeah, because once again, if we're not careful, what we'll do is we'll just read one chapter in isolation today and then be confused, put it on the shelf, come back tomorrow, read another one, be confused, and then come back the next day and we might come across, oh, okay, now I understand this one, but we haven't benefited from looking at them the way the original prophet put them down as one whole. So here's what happens. Whenever you get Isaiah quoted in the Book of Mormon, try not to get into the trap of just reading it completely in isolation because the prophets never never package Isaiah in isolation. They put a nice little border around him. So you always watch for what they say as an introduction. They're going to give you a rationale, a reason they're not just writing along or teaching the people and all of a sudden say, okay, pause, and then pull out Isaiah and start reading it to them. They don't do that. There's a reason they're going to Isaiah and they usually tell you why they're doing that here in the chapter or chapters right before. So,
0: as a parenting technique, if I actually gave my kids an introduction of why I'm lecturing them with Isaiah, they would receive it better, there you go. but I'm just jumping right in.
1: There you go, especially if at the end <laughs> you give them your prophetic or parental commentary. Right. So, when prophets quote prophets, whether in a general conference setting uh, in our day or in a scriptural setting, they have some authority from the Lord to tell you what they got out of those chapters. Well, that's exactly what you get here in this Come, Follow Me section for this week. We get chapter 6, this is all in 2nd Nephi, chapter 6, Jacob is going to introduce why he he wants to go to Isaiah and why Nephi asked him to read these particular chapters. Jacob's on assignment from his presiding authority in this case, and he tells you that. So, he's going to give you some some heads up here, some look for this. Then he gives you the Isaiah chapters that he's going to quote, which are 50, 51, the first two verses of chapter 52. Then he gives you his commentary. So if you struggle reading chapters seven and eight, just pay attention to some of these and you're going to say, oh, that helps me unlock some of the meaning of these more
0: difficult to understand words and phrases and passages. And we've talked about the covenants, the house of Israel. These are all major and crucial themes for understanding why Jacob, why Nephi, well, first of all, why Isaiah preached these things, and then why Jacob and Nephi repeated the words of Isaiah and then explained them to their people. And I want to go back to something he said a little bit ago about how God gave us a covenantal community. Now in the modern world, we live in this individualistic society. It's all about me. It's all about me. And we actually, as members of the church, are part of a covenantal community. And that's what the invitation here is to see the covenantal community that God has established, is inviting us into. And the word church comes from the ancient Greek word ekklesia. It literally means those who are called out from the world to join into a covenantal community. God is trying to remind his people, remember the Abrahamic covenant is God's duty and his loyalty to us. He's trying to remind them of his love, his mercy, his kindness, because they've been kind of, drifting away from him. And we imagine even Nephi's people, maybe they're starting to feel like worried, like, do we still have God's love? Maybe they've been struggling in some way. And listen to what, what we hear from the words of Isaiah chapter 7 of 2nd Nephi. He begins with saying, yea, for thus saith the Lord, have I put thee away or have I cast thee off forever? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no, but he's trying to get the people to think about like, I haven't left you. If you're feeling sad or lonely or feeling like you're not experiencing my blessings, why not turn back to me? I'm still here. I'm still waiting to be with you. I want you to be my people. And he goes on, for thus saith the Lord, where is the bill of your mother's divorcement? To whom have I put thee away? Or to which of my creditors have I sold you? Yea, to whom have I sold you? And he goes on and says, behold, for your iniquities have you sold yourselves, and for your transgressions is your mother put away.
1: So, it's this idea of, in that covenant, to, I will be your God, you will be my people. That verse is, is example after example after example of, I never do this. Yeah. It's always you who are doing this. I never gave you a divorce. I never told you I'm done with you.
0: I'm sick of you. I'm I tired never of you. I never kicked you out of the land. I don't do that. But you walked out of the land because of your transgressions. To be more specific, your transgressions meant I had to let you go but I want to bring you back in. Please come back. And this is always what God is offering, and I want to tie it into our day. Our sacrament service is a replication of the Passover meal where God saved his people. And just like the Israelites partook of the, the blood and flesh of the lamb, we do the same thing, and that's actually a covenantal reunion where the people pledge themselves to be God's people. And we make that covenant every single week. We're saying, I'm going to be yours, God, and what does he give us in return? You'll have my presence.
1: And isn't that, isn't that amazing how God does that in a sacrament setting where you combine the best of the Hebrew mindset with the best of the Greek mindset? Yeah. You gather as a group, you come in families and, and, and as a ward family to partake of those emblems as a group, and that identity as a group, but you partake of those elements as an individual, one by one you're making that individual covenant. I th- I think it's beautiful how God's doing that to the point where the very verse you read out of chapter 7, we know that Isaiah is talking about the house of Israel, this big group. We get that, but the reality is, is at the uh, individual mindset level, it's also true. You can have an entire family who's covenant-keeping and they're doing everything right, and one individual say, I don't want him to be my God anymore. I want to go and do this other stuff." And they forsake the covenant, they leave the faith, so to speak, and the same exact thing can be said of that individual. Is God saying to that individual, here's a writing of my divorcement, I'm done with you? No. So, he treats us collectively and individually with this complete uh, love and covenant-keeping perspective.
0: And there's actually a number of passages here in Isaiah where he talks about and reminds people of his, his covenantal faithfulness. And so, as you read 2 Nephi chapter 7-8, through look for how does God describe himself? What does he say that he has done for the people or what he will do? And then what does he talk about what he expects the people to do or what they have or have not done? And that can help elucidate what Isaiah is talking about. And then we can think about Jacob is trying to encourage the people of Nephi to trust God. God has not moved. He is still there, full of grace, full of mercy. He is the Holy One of Israel who had saved their ancestors in the wilderness and led them to the Promised Land. And you had marked a couple of passages about that.
1: Yeah, what I wanted to show you here is so it, it would be a great exercise for you to jump into seven and eight. But first of all, make sure you, you get the context that Jacob gives us from chapter 6. Let me give you just a couple of examples to, to empower you to hopefully have a better experience than you've ever had before reading Isaiah in the Book of Mormon. Look at verse 5 of chapter 6. This is Jacob's intro here. Now the words which I shall read are they which Isaiah spake concerning all the house of Israel, wherefore they may be likened unto you, for ye are of the house of Israel. Again, you can take the Hebrew level because, yeah, you're part of this big group, but also don't leave out the I level, that individual that, oh wow, this, this applies to me directly regardless of what anybody else does. It's pretty profound. Now look at verse 10. Again, thinking of the big group as well as you. After they have hardened their hearts and stiffened their necks against the Holy One of Israel, Behold, the judgments of the Holy One of Israel shall come upon them, and the day cometh that they shall be smitten and afflicted. Wherefore, after they are driven to and fro, for thus saith the angel, Many shall be afflicted in the flesh, and shall not be suffered to perish, because of the prayers of the faithful, they shall be scattered, and smitten, and hated. Nevertheless, the Lord will be merciful unto them, that when they shall come to the knowledge of their Redeemer, they shall be gathered together again to the lands of their inheritance." We can see this through the history of the house of Israel and I hope you can see this and sense this with regards to your loved ones who maybe have struggled and perhaps strayed from the covenant path. And if you read it through both of those lenses, I can promise you that you're going to have a better experience reading these chapters of Isaiah, here chapter 7 and 8, where he's where he's going to be laying this out for us, what God has done for us even though we've been completely unfaithful at certain times.
0: We're not going to spend a lot of time in these chapters because we want to invite you to spend more time exp- for you exploring in the scriptures and having the spirit guide you with some of these insights we provided, but why don't you spend a few minutes talking about a couple passages you, you've highlighted. and I want to spend just a minute or two on the last two verses of 2 Nephi chapter 8.
1: Okay, so I, I'm not going to cover anything in here. I want you to dive in. I want to just give one little teeny segment here in, verse, in chapter 8, which is uh, Isaiah 51, verse 12, back to the idea of, I will be your God, you will be my people. I am he – yea, I am he that comforteth you. Behold, who art thou, that thou shouldst be afraid of man who should die, and of the son of man who shall be made like unto grass? Why are you fearing people who aren't gods, organizations who aren't gods? They sometimes act like they are, they, they talk as if they are, but they're not. They're just they're, – they're made of the dust of the earth just like you are, but you're, you're forgetting the Lord thy maker, in verse 13, it, which kind of harkens back to something he said. I told you I wasn't going to take you into seven, but here I am. Go back to chapter 7 verse 11. Behold, all ye that kindle fire, that compass yourselves about with sparks, walk in the light of your fire and in the sparks which you have kindled. This shall ye have of my hand. Ye shall lie down in sorrow. The idea of, you can try to set up your own light, you can try to set up your own your own sense of 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 a God, but you're going to walk in darkness because the light you can kindle is nothing that can compare with what God sets up for us. And so he's, he's setting up this beautiful contrast that the world we live in is pleading for you to leave God and come and embrace them, and he's saying you can, but you have this of mine hand, you're going to lie down in sorrow. And that's not a threat, it's just a reality it just is. That is what's going to happen when you, when you do this. But then the beautiful thing is, is he'll still be kind to us. Look at verse 22. Thus saith thy Lord, the Lord and thy God, pleadeth the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken out of thine hand the cup of trembling and the dregs of the cup of my fury. Thou shalt no more drink it again. No worldly organization, no individual on the earth can make you that promise. Only God can make that promise. And He makes it over and over and over again.
0: And once He has convinced us that He is God, He is immovable, His mercy endures forever, He concludes, I mean, Isaiah concludes 2 Nephi chapter 8 with this call for us, this action for us to take. Okay, now that we know that God will be totally true to us, what should we do? awake, awake, put on thy strength, O Zion. What's that strength? It's the atonement of Jesus Christ. It comes through repentance. Put on the beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city, for henceforth there shall no more come unto thee the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake thyself from the dust. Arise, sit down, O Jerusalem. Loose thyself from the bands of thy neck, O captive daughter of Zion. So God is saying, I am here for you. I have never let you go. Please come back to me. Now,
1: the chapter that most of you are probably most familiar with, chapter 9, which is the beginning of Jacob's commentary of what he's just read, and he takes us straight into this atoning, redemptive process that Jesus went through for us. And quite interestingly, he will share some things here that you don't find uh, explained in great detail in very many other places in all of the scripture. Let me give you an example. Look at verse 5, he says, I know, yea, I know, that ye know that in the body he shall show himself unto those at Jerusalem from whence we came. For it is expedient that it should be among them, for it behooveth the great Creator, that he suffereth himself to become subject unto man in the flesh. Now let me repeat that, it behooveth him, it's required of him, he has to do this, he has to suffer himself to become subject unto man in the flesh, and subsequently die for all men, that all men might become subject unto Him. Let's unpack that for a minute. Most of you are very, very familiar with and and comfortable with the notion of Jesus going into Gethsemane, and uh, falling to the ground, and his his prayer being, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto Thee. Remove this cup from me. Nevertheless not as I will, but as thou wilt, not my will, but thine be done. We're very, very comfortable with Jesus saying, here's what I want, here's my will, I don't want to keep doing this, remove this cup, take it away, stop this suffering, it's it's worse than I thought it could be. Nevertheless, he swallows his will up in the will of the Father, not my will, but thine be done. You do whatever you want to do here. But it's interesting that Jacob's wording here, it's the same idea, except for in this case, it's Jesus taking his will and having it be swallowed up in the will of men, not just any men, but those particular men, who Jacob later on is going to say, no other nation would crucify their God. It's as if Jesus is saying to them, here I am, I don't want you to abuse me, nevertheless not my will but thine be done. And boy, oh boy, do they do they unleash on him? To hearken back to some of the Isaiah passages, look at this. If you look back at chapter 7, verse 6, I gave my back to the smiter, and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. It's as if Jacob is saying, Jesus isn't wanting this to happen. It doesn't feel good. He doesn't enjoy it but he's willing to allow his will to be swallowed up in their will and they're having at him. They're smiting him. He gave his cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John don't even go there. We don't even hear about that. Mm-hmm. In another passage there in Isaiah, he says that Jesus' countenance, his visage, his appearance is going to be marred more so than any man, the idea being they are going to abuse him to an incredible level, and Jacob's commentary is, all of this had to happen so that the day could come when all men might become subject unto him in the, uh, in the judgment.
0: When I read this, I just find it so beautiful how the prophets all speak with the same voice, and it's all focused on Jesus, that if we will have him to be our God, we will find that the suffering we experience in this life will always be swallowed up in the suffering of Jesus Christ, that we can be redeemed, brought back in the presence of God, and find eternal happiness. So, to make sense of this next part, referring to what
1: Jesus is going to accomplish um, in in his infinite atonement process, we have to understand the, the two main elements that are at play here. When Adam and Eve partake of the fruit, they are promised, in the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. So, there's a a spiritual death where they're they're removed from the presence of Heavenly Father, but then within that thousand-year, one day of the Lord, whatever way you want to look at that, they're also going to die physically. So, we have this physical death that becomes a reality for all of us as children of Adam and Eve, but we also have this spiritual separation from God that we have also inherited. Um, So we would just call this death, and this would ultimately be hell. Jacob is going to teach this, in my opinion, better than anybody in the scriptures. This guy is off the charts amazing how he clarifies what Jesus did to overcome these, even giving it a name, that awful monster, death and hell. So watch, watch what happens. Well, and This is
0: why Nephi – look, Nephi is not full of himself. He knows that his brother is such a capable gospel communicator that he's like, why don't you jump into my journal and take a, take a couple of chapters here? you know? I would have never done it with any of my brothers because I know exactly what they would write about me, okay? It would be the truth, it would be very embarrassing. <laughs> so
1: he's, he's – I love that. He's, he's saying, Jacob, I'm, I'm the prophet, I'm in charge of the people, but I want to delegate this part of the meeting. You teach the people this. You, you understand this. We've had a lot of conversations, and Dad taught you well, and go for it. Look at what he says, verse 7 wherefore, it must needs be an infinite atonement. Save it should be an infinite atonement, this corruption could not put on incorruption. Wherefore, the first judgment which came upon man must needs have remained. What was the first judgment? Getting kicked out of the Garden of Eden. And without an infinite atonement, that judgment would remain to an endless duration. Now, let me just pause here for a second. Go back to that moment in Gethsemane, middle of the night, Jesus is on the ground, look at his prayer. Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee, remove this cup from me. If the sentence stops there, from our perspective, if we're up in heaven watching that and we hear that, is our reaction, oh, it's not a big deal? I think that it is a big deal because we understand this doctrine here from Jacob's speech here in about 550 BC. Look at what he says would happen to us if Jesus doesn't complete an infinite atonement. If so, this flesh must have laid down to rot and to crumble to its mother earth, to rise no more. Those are pretty sobering words. That becomes eternal for us, to rise no more, you're done. Now look what happens to your spirit if Christ doesn't complete an infinite atonement. Verse 8, O the wisdom of God, his mercy and his grace! For behold, if the flesh should rise no more, our spirits must become subject to that angel who fell from before the presence of the eternal God and became the devil, to rise no more. Jacob used the same four words, to rise no more, to say, that's what happens to your body if Jesus doesn't complete an infinite atonement, to rise no more, That's what happens to your spirit if Jesus doesn't complete an infinite atonement. We're kind of in a fix here. There's a lot weighing down on that moment. That's why my favorite word in the English uh, scriptures is, nevertheless, because it's at that point that it becomes this turning point, nevertheless, not my will but thine be done, because without him completing that infinite atonement, there's no purpose in any of us trying to find any kind of joy, enduring joy of any kind, doesn't exist without this infinite atonement in place. So look at verse 10. Oh, how great the goodness of our God, who prepareth a way for our escape from the grasp of this awful monster, yea, that monster, death and hell, which I call the death of the body and also the death of the spirit. And because of the way, Of deliverance of our God, the Holy One of Israel, this death of which I have spoken, which is the temporal, shall deliver up its dead, which death is the grave." And then he also talks about how we'll overcome this and be brought back into the presence of the Father for
0: judgment. One of the powerful words here is the word wisdom in verse 8. Oh, the wisdom of God. In a prior video, I talked about uh, the power of that word wisdom And other words in English that are related to the word wisdom are vision, evidence, uh, story, history. And what God does is he shows us through the stories of the scriptures, the history of the house of Israel, he gives us evidence of his love, of this covenant path that saves us from these deaths, and that leads us to wisdom. And truly, uh, we both work in higher ed and people want to become more wise, they go and get an education. And I'm jumping ahead just briefly, but this verse 29, it says, to be learned is good if they hearken unto the counsels of God. That is true wisdom. Don't get me wrong, I mean, studying the world and history and anything else that we might learn about is great, but true wisdom is seeing evidence for God's love. And that is what Jacob's trying to reveal to us plain words that just cannot be misunderstood. And of all the learning you can get in the world, the most important learning you can get is to hearken the counsels of God and to believe the witness, which actually comes from the word wisdom, the word wit means uh, wisdom to see and vision, is this witness that Jesus Christ is our Savior and he saves us from these twin deaths that we are all subject to without his loving kindness. So something for you
1: to to pay attention to as you go through chapter nine. Uh, a former student of mine, Kyle Smith, who who also is a seminary teacher now, he shared this idea that chapter nine has the cheery O's and the dreadful woes. It's <laughs> just kind good. of fun to look at and mark all of the O's. Oh, oh, oh. They're they're everywhere in here. Jacob is overcome with, with joy at, at the deliverance that is promised him, and he's using this "oh" um, over and over again. And then the second half of chapter nine, he's going to use those dreadful woes. What happens when you don't take upon you the name of Christ? When you don't recognize His infinite atonement? It's a it's a life of woe. And just as a, a little side note on the the speaker here, Jacob, I love. I love when you see a person's uh, character, their attributes, their personality shine through either in written word or if they've spoken them, and in this case, he spoke them, Nephi wrote them down for us. Look at what you notice about Jacob's personality in verse 14. I love this guy, he's one of my heroes. Wherefore, we – notice he's including himself – we shall have a perfect knowledge of all our guilt and our uncleanness and our nakedness. And then notice how he finishes it. And the righteous shall have a perfect knowledge of their enjoyment and their righteousness being clothed with purity, even with the robe of righteousness. I don't know very many people who are more righteous than Jacob, who are more good than Jacob, and yet he's being so cautious to not come across as self-righteous. He's saying, look, we, we're going to remember all of the bad things we did, but the righteous, they're going to remember all of their goodness and their purity and their righteousness, and he's not putting himself in that group, he's
0: putting himself in this group, and I don't know, there's something about that that I really like. Well, it's just humility. He recognizes – he participates in this condition as well, and he needs – we all equally need the atoning love of Jesus Christ. It's just that simple. So, one – one
1: closing thought for me in chapter 10. So, Jacob, he he gives that long speech in chapter 9. It's been a long day. They go home, they come back the next day, and he gives the second half, which is chapter 10. I want you to notice what he says at the very end of his speech, chapter 10 verse 24. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, reconcile yourselves to the will of God. That's what Jesus did reconciled himself to the will of God, and we want to be more like him, and not to the will of the devil and the flesh. And remember that after ye are reconciled unto God, that it is only in and through the grace of God that ye are saved. I don't think it's uh, inappropriate to end with a little personal story here. One time, uh, many years ago, my son Jarrett was – turning four, and he wasn't potty trained yet, and that bothered me. And I worked with him and worked with him, and the kid just couldn't be bothered. And finally, I came up with a system where I said, look, if you can go seven days without an accident, you and I will get a date. Where do you want to go? And he told me he wanted to go to McDonald's. I'm willing to go to even McDonald's for you on this one. (laughs) So we worked at it, and I can't remember whether he was three or four days into it, no accidents, and it was great. And then one day – there in the middle. I came up the stairs into our bedroom, looked into the bathroom, and there's this little four-year-old in the dark master bathroom hunched down on the floor. I went and looked over his shoulder and saw that he had some – a little wad of toilet paper, and he was uh, trying to clean up an accident. I flipped on the light and said, Jarrett, what happened? And this little kid just burst into – to a pile of tears instantaneously, and his little body was just racked with sobs. I said, after I calmed a little bit, I said, Jarrett, what happened? And he he didn't answer my question. He just looked at me with big tears and he said, I'm never gonna get that date with you, am I, Daddy? At that point my whole heart sunk into my shoe, and I took that little four year old and I grabbed him, pulled him onto my lap, and I just held him, and I cried with him because I had the same feeling going through struggles of mortality, feeling like, I'm never going to get that date with you, am I, Daddy? And uh, in that moment, the infinite atonement of Jesus Christ became not just this big thing that covers everybody, but it became a very, very close and personal thing, and there have been so many moments in my life where that, where that has occurred, but this is one little example to embody this idea of these teachings, these doctrines, they're not just contained in a book, they're part of reality. There is a God in heaven who does love you. He sent his Son to save you, and his Son is very good at what he does, and if you'll just stick with him and keep trying, keep getting up, As many times as you have an accident, little Jarrett told me after he had calmed down, he said, Daddy, I'm so sorry. I didn't try to have an accident. I was trying to get to the potty on time, but I didn't quite make it. And then he was trying to clean up his own mess, and I said, Jarrett, can I I clean up that mess for you? And he said, yes. And I said, thank you, (laughs) because quite frankly, it's a lot easier for me to do that. And that is true for all of us. There is – this this savior who is your savior and redeemer know that you're loved
2: the come follow me program is an incredible resource to aid your gospel study there are many supplementary come follow me video programs within the church these videos should never be a replacement for your own personal and family study as this video finishes we encourage you to open your scriptures and begin studying the sacred words written there. If you need additional resources to enhance your study of the Scriptures, please check out the Gospel Learning app from Scripture Central. You can search just about any topic in the Gospel that you can think of and find a number of videos to help enhance your understanding. We are certain these learning paths will deepen your desire to follow Christ. The Gospel Explorer feature within the app was created with the Come Follow Me program in mind. Let's explore the learning paths in the Gospel Learning App this week. On the left path, we dive into the topic of prophets quoting the words of past prophets. This helps build our faith that God is continually guiding us and speaking to us through his living prophets. The middle pathway goes in depth on the atonement of Jesus Christ. This pathway splits into two sections. One on the understanding the redemptive power of the atonement of Jesus Christ and the second one taking a look into the physical nature of Christ's sacrifice. The last pathway explores the hopeful message of the gospel, which Jacob shares with us, as well as his prophetic warnings if we fail to keep the commandments of God. Thanks for watching with us. We hope you become a more devoted disciple through immersing yourselves more fully in the scriptures each day.